Hey there, fabricators. Hola, fabricadoras. This is the Fab Lab Podcast, and I'm your host, Aaron Crowley. It's been a month, exactly a month. It's January 20th, last episode, episode 159, where I talked a little bit about an idea that I shared, a concept, a uh, kind of an unconventional approach to fabricating, not in the interest of suggesting anybody should go do that, but to sort of demonstrate the value of thinking outside the box, of imagining things that uh, maybe others haven't done and just continuing to develop our businesses in such a way that uh, we do everything that we can do to make it easier, um, to make it more profitable, to get more done with less time, to generate more results with less effort. Not that we don't work, but that we don't have to work quite as hard to accomplish the things that are important to us in life. And so in this episode, exactly one month later here on February 20th, I'm going to continue that theme, and this is going to probably be episode two in a four-part series, the last episode, episode 159, being uh, uh, the sort of the, the beginning of this process of thinking outside the box, imagining things, looking at things differently, considering things we perhaps have never considered before in the interest of stabilizing our stone shops, creating more value, and expanding the opportunities available to us. So perhaps we are not solely and exclusively reliant upon the performance of our stone shops. We've got to broaden the approach a little bit. And so in this episode, I'm going to set the stage for the next two episodes talking about a side hustle. Now, I owned my countertop shop for 22 years and about nine months 10 months. And along the way, I started three other companies. And I'm going to share briefly the stories for each one of those because that's going to be the theme. The next couple of episodes are going to be talking about the value of having a side hustle. Now, you may be thinking, are you kidding me? What are you talking about? I've got one business already that is taxing me to the absolute limit. And uh, you want me to start another one, a separate business, a side business? Come on, just bear with me. There are different types of businesses that require very different amounts of time, effort, and energy and produce, in some cases, phenomenal return on investment. Now, those side hustles may not be large enough, being a side hustle, to replace your stone shop income, but what if you could augment? What if you could add to the income that your stone shop is already providing me? So stick with me, fellow fabricator. Stone shop owners from across the fruited plain, you got to stick with me. I am telling you, there is massive value and perhaps great opportunity for you to spread the risk, if you will. Expand beyond the confines of your fab shop. Expand your mind a little bit to imagine what may be possible. And I'm here to tell you, and you'll, you'll hear along the way as I share the three side hustles that I started while running my stone shop how it unfolded, and it may be easier than you think. So in this episode, I'm going to share, it's really three businesses, and I guess there's a fourth depending on how you look at it. And so fellow fabricators, I'm so glad that you tuned into this episode, episode 160 of the Fab Lab podcast with me, your host, Aaron Crowley, talking a bit of history. So in 1998, October of 1998, October 15th of 1998, to be exact, I started my first day in business trying to get my stone shop running. What was really interesting, I had been working for a company for about five years at that point. I was a started off as a floor sweeper in a slurry tank cleaner and a helper putting countertops up and then 
I started running. I think the next thing I ran was the old, it was an AccuCut, Park Industries AccuCut. This would have been in 1993. Uh, went to a Pro Edge 2 and then a Bernie 5 CNC router that was really not a stone router. But anyway, 1993. So in 1998, five years later, I went into business for myself. But along the way, I had started to do a lot of side work. I could not imagine having started as a 17-year-old, um, I, I couldn't imagine with all that equipment, it was unfathomable to me that I would be able to go start my own stone shop at that scale. It just was, I, I couldn't think there. But I was doing a lot of side work, and so I could imagine doing piecework for all the other fabricators in town. Instead of working by the hour, I could work by the foot, doing installs or doing fabrication. And so in the summer before I started my shop, I was doing a ton of side work. I was working evenings and weekends, making a lot of money doing piecework. And then this bright idea struck, well, if you did side work full time, you'd probably double or triple your income. So that was the theory. <laughs> Not that I'd start a stone shop, but that I would start my own contracting business. And so right out of the gate, October 15th, 1998, I go into business for myself to be a contract fabricator and installer. And like within five seconds of doing that, all the guys that I'd been doing side work for <laughs> got slow or so it seemed. And I fell into a little, I guess a little, you know, facet of the industry that I didn't know existed. I started doing tile polishing for tile setters. And so for most of 1998, I did tile polishing with a little bit of stone fabricating and countertop installations thrown in around the edges. And I made a ton of money polishing tile. Well, my goal was, you know, was really to get into the slab. I'd been a slab guy and not a tile guy. And so by, I don't know, the middle of 1999, I was already looking for a shop. By that fall, I had leased my first shop and I was doing slab countertops, but I was still doing tile. And my countertop business, again, which is what I really wanted to do, and it was kind of unfolding before my eyes. I had a little forklift, had some wooden tables, was cutting slabs with a skill saw, not exactly a big bridge saw with two tables under it, but it worked. Yet I was still polishing tile. Now, here's the interesting thing. In polishing that tile, I realized something that granite tiles vary in thickness, kind of like slabs do. And I, I, when I was setting those things down, I had these tile setters that wanted a consistent transition line, but I was like, how do I shim these things? How do I do this? So this idea struck me. What if I got these toggle clamps with a rubber plunger on them, and instead of setting the tiles down on a surface, which made the tops uneven because they varied in thickness, what if I run that plunger up underneath into a fixed surface so that the surface of the tiles, the top of the tiles, were all in the same plane? Well, so I, I went to Granger, I bought these toggle clamps, I went to this metal store and bought this big aluminum extrusion, and I constructed this, <laughs> this apparatus where I could put seven tiles in a row. I could set them up in like, like 15 seconds. I could have seven tiles clamped across this structure up against this aluminum uh, extrusion, and, and then I could start polishing. And I made, it was so, the setup was so fast, and the consistency along the top, because you know, the, the tile installers would float them up, even if they varied in thickness, the tops were all the same. They just mudded them a little bit differently so that the transition lines lined up. I did a really good job. In fact, I was doing a much better job than the other outfit in town that also polished tile. So back to the slab story. I'm making countertops, got my little slab shop, also doing tile polishing. I was hiring guys you know, to come in at night and do tile polishing, or I'd do it, or you know, whatever. But it was really good money. I made really good money doing that. Well, then I run across this tile company, what became or what was at the time the largest tile installer in Portland. 
three different tile companies. These guys had all merged their business and they created this one big company and they were going absolutely gangbusters. This was probably in 2000 and probably 2000 still doing a lot of tile polishing. Well, anyway, they said, Hey, we would like you to do all of our tile polishing. We're so busy setting tile. We don't have time to have our installers doing the polishing. So I, I worked this deal with them. And part of the deal was that I did the polishing in their building, which happened to be just down, like literally on the same street, Burnham Street in Tigard, Oregon. I'm like, well, God. And they had some reason why they wanted me to lease this space. So I ended up going, whatever. I set up this tile polishing room, but I said on one condition, you don't let anybody into this room because I've got this device that is what allows me to make these tiles, you know, really straight and transition lines really, you know, even and whatnot. I don't want anybody in there messing with my stuff because that's my that's my advantage. I don't want anybody to copy that. It's this old like albatross slurry covered wood you know, contraption with this aluminum bar, you know, clamped to the top of it. And they're like, yeah, yeah, whatever. We won't. We're, we're not going to bother with your your thing. So anyway, I rent the space. I'm doing all this tile polishing. So I'd have guys run over to their shop and do the tile polishing in this room. And then we were making countertops at my other shop, you know, across the street. Well, then I get this call from the manager, right? He was one of the partners, but he wasn't the tile guy. He was like the business manager. He's like, hey, we want to we talk to you about this contraption in our room over here. What is this thing? And I went over there and we, we started talking. Well, these three other owners that had started this tile shop who had all polished tile themselves were like, Hey, there's nothing like this around. So first business, folks, ladies and gentlemen, had my countertop shop. I had this company. We went into business together. We formed a partnership. I owned 50% of it. And we hired an engineer. And we we basically took my concept of that tile polishing bench and turned it into a legitimate manufactured product. It was called the EdgeRite. You can still find it. Now, we made every mistake known to mankind in developing and launching that business. And so that business in and of itself was not an extremely uh, lucrative venture, but I learned uh, oh, probably about a millionfold. What I learned from that experience came back and benefited me unbelievably. So that was, that was number one, a business that came out of fabricating, basically, and, and it worked. The thing was a great product. We just didn't know how to build it, and we didn't know how to market it. That was the product. So in that same era, not too far longer, Product number two, business number two. First one was the edge right. The second one was the stone sleeves. Now, you've probably heard me mention on this podcast occasionally, fabricatorsfriend.com. Well, that's another business that I started. Was talking to a buddy of mine. He was a water ski enthusiast that skied in the wintertime here in Oregon, which I thought was absurd. I'm like, I don't believe it. And he's like, oh, yeah, we wear dry suits. I was like, what's a dry suit? You mean a wetsuit? He's like, no, a dry suit. I'm like, what is, what is that? And so he describes to me, I'll never forget the picture in my mind. He describes to me these rubber seals, two wrist seals, two ankle seals, and a neck seal that would allow them to water ski in the wintertime in Oregon and stay warm, you know, dry, number one, and as a result of that, warm. I'm like, a dry suit, dry suit, dry suit. So this is you know early 2000s, no internet at this point. At least I didn't have internet. So I go to the phone book. I find a water ski supply, you know, like uh, c- category in the, in the yellow phone book. I looked down. It was uh, a water sports store in Beaverton, Oregon. I immediately call them. I'm like, hey, do you have this thing called a dry suit? And they're like, oh, yeah, we carry a, a, a bunch of different kinds. So I drive down there. I walk in the door. They got boats out front and all this gear inside. I walk and I go, where are your dry suits? They're like, and then the back. I walk back through. And folks, fellow fabricators, I am telling you, I found that rack, that basically um, like a, like a, all these hangers that had these dry suits on them. I found the rack. 
I unzip this dry suit, this nylon dry suit, and I slide my arm down the sleeve and my hand pops out of this rubber wrist seal. And I mean, it was like one of those moments like, oh, it all of a sudden hit me. And this is what I had been imagining when he described to me a rubber wrist seal. I'm like, if it'll keep you dry out in the middle of the river, I wonder if it'll keep my sleeves dry in the middle of the winter when I'm wet polishing or cutting because I hate having sopping wet sleeves and I hate being cold all the time. My hand pops through that wrist seal and it snugly and gently and perfectly seals around my wrist. And I'm like, seriously, pull my hand out. I look on the tag. This dry suit is manufactured in Scappoose, Oregon. One of two companies in the U.S. that manufactured those type of dry suits was like 45 minutes from my house. Okay, name of the company. I can tell you the name of the company. They still make dry suits. It was called USIA, Scappoose, Oregon. I call them up. I'm like, hey, do you have any old dry suit sleeves that I could buy off you, like a defect or a reject or what have you? And they're like, oh, I guess. So anyway, they mail me a pair of these sleeves, this weird like neon color left over from the 90s. I stick a rubber band around the top of it, and I don't. the thought has never crossed my mind that I would sell these to anybody. I'm just like the tile polishing bench. I'm just simply looking for a solution to make my job easier. And lo and behold, an entire business develops out of that. Well, same thing happened with that first pair of sleeves. I put that pair of sleeves, and I start using them. It wasn't that I had a, I was like, I didn't even know what I was doing in the business that I already had. But I just wanted dry sleeves. <laughs> so I start wearing them. And then, you know, I don't know, days, weeks, months later, I'm like, huh, I'm probably not the only one who doesn't like having sopping wet sleeves from October to May. Perhaps I'll see if some of my buddies want would like a pair. So I ordered like five pairs. And I think I had to have those made. And they were random colors like lime green and fluorescent pink and you know dark blue, whatever. I didn't have any choice over the color. I get a few pairs of them. And I go back to some of my buddies who fabricated. And I'm like, hey, probably sold them at cost just to see if they'd like them. And lo and behold, they liked not having wet sleeves too. Next thing you know, I'm, it's like, oh, well, if, they, if they'd like these. So I... All the catalogs I had, old old school. Some of you may not even remember these these names. Vic International, um, Eastern Marble Supply, well, Grand Courts, of course, Braxton Bragg, um, Hard Rock Tool. These old staple, um, these old mainstay companies that were tooling, you know, sellers at the time in the early two thousands. <clears throat> I'm sending samples off to them, and uh, every single one of them. Vic International, I might have already mentioned them. They're they're gone now. Every single solitary one of those buyers that I mailed a pair of sleeves to got back to me and said, this is the, I mean, literally, if they even got back to me, but I remember one conversation in particular, this lady, this buyer for this particular company that will remain nameless, she was like insulted. She was literally insulted that I would suggest this product for other fabricators to keep their sleeves dry, you know, in, in the wintertime. And, and, and she was just, she just read me the riot act up one side and down the other. What a stupid idea it was. The fact that nobody was ever going to pay that kind of money for a sleeve. How stupid. And I was really discouraged, but I didn't have a lot to lose. Like, whatever. I sent some samples out. It was worth a try. One particular buyer, his name was Brian Gambrell. He was the purchasing manager for Braxton Bragg at the time. He's like, you know, I don't know if this thing will work or not. Some of the things that we think, I swear this was like exact words, I can still remember to this day where I was standing in our little rental house when this guy told me this. 
He's like, some of the things we think are going to be home runs, they flop, and the things that we think have no chance take off. You know what? Send me a box of 50. We'll put them in the Slippery Rock Gazette and see if we can sell them. I'm like, what? 50? No way. So, again, 50 pairs. It was probably 10 different colors. I had no option. I had no choice on what the color was. I wasn't making any money on them because I didn't know how to price them. But I shipped this box of 50 sleeves. We did an ad. Like, I took some pictures in my little fab shop of me wearing them. I remember I had this goofy sweatshirt on and a pair of orange grungeons bibs on and an old hat. I mean, it was just hilarious. And these, like, neon yellow sleeves running my little electric flex polisher because I didn't have air. I was doing I was doing all my fabrication with an electric flex and a skill saw. Anyway, next thing you know, those things are selling like hotcakes. Next thing you know, I've got a name, the Stone Sleeve. Next thing you know, I've got a company called Fabricator's Friend. Next thing you know, I'm thinking, you know, the other thing that I hate, wearing these hot bibs and these ridiculous, like, shower liner gasket aprons that are heavy and uncomfortable. They're expensive. I've got a shoestring digging into my neck and a shoestring that's tied at my belly. They're super unsafe. They're super hot. They're super heavy. Super uncomfortable, and this idea strikes me. I wonder if I could get an apron made. So I call my manufacturer. I'm like, hey, do you guys got the, how big of this these sheets of this nylon come? Can you guys make me an apron? I'm just tired of it. And, and I had this idea. I want a neoprene neck strap. My thought being that would just make it so much more comfortable and, and, and probably feel so much lighter. So I'm like, I don't care what the cost is. I just want you to make the widest, longest, most durable, we put thousand denier cordura down the front of it because, you know, obviously we're working in an abrasive environment. And I want a suspender webbing belt in the back so that I'm not going to catch my grinder and the shoestring on my belly and it'll stretch and flex a little bit when I bend over. So I, I, in my mind, I'm designing the most expensive and the best apron I could possibly imagine. They make me one. I'm like, wow, seriously, this is really nice. So I go through the same routine yet again. I send samples off. I give people that they love them. I send samples to all the buyers. I hear the exact same thing. Nobody's ever going to spend $75 on an apron when they can buy one for $20. And I'm like, okay. But everybody hates that $20 you know, gasket with a shoestring that digs into their neck. Next thing you know, fellow fabricators, I'm here to tell you, we were selling those sleeves and those aprons faster than my manufacturer could make them. I ended up having two manufacturers. We couldn't make them fast enough. So another business was born. And I'm here to tell you that business has expanded there. We've got jackets now. We've got two different aprons. We're about to launch a floor mat product, fellow fabricators. I've been working on this. This is not intended to be a plug. It just <laughs> We're getting ready to send samples. I've been talking to the buyers, about ready to go through the same thing yet again. I'm going to be sending samples, and I am prepared to hear nobody's ever going to pay that much for a rubber mat in the floor under their undermount sink, and I will give them the same response. Yes, but you've never stood on a concrete floor 8, 9, 10, 11 hours a day, day in and day out, with an aching back while you polish those undermount sinks. I think those poor fabricators are going to like standing on a cushion of air. So let's get them out there, and let's see if there's a market. I suspect that there is. <laughs> but fellow fabricator, amazing. Again, no intention of starting a business. I just was trying to solve a problem. In this case, it was just the discomfort of being soaking wet or wearing a crappy apron all the time that wore out really fast, got cut really easily, and I had to be, it was like a consumable. I wanted an apron that lasted, and those bulletproof aprons that we sell through Fabricator's Friend are virtually indestructible. There is not another apron like it on the market, except for those hacks who've knocked off our apron. <laughs> 
gone to China and copied them. There are those. But those probably last just as long as ours do. Maybe not. They're probably made of cheaper material. But you get my point. I didn't intend to start another business, but I am here to tell you, fellow fabricator. This is one of the points I want to make in this story. And I'll make it here in a little bit once I get done telling you the next story. The contribution that that little business has made to my business, to my fab shop, is unbelievable. And the contribution it has made to my income is also unbelievable. Never, never intending to start another company, just trying to solve a problem. And when I solved the problem for myself, I thought, man, maybe somebody else would like to solve this problem too. And and here's here's a solution. And lo and behold, when you solve people's problems, when you make things easier for people, they are willing to pay you for the privilege of using that solution. So let me tell you about the third product. First one was the Edge Right. You can Google that and find it. It, it. That was a sweet product. It just, I didn't have the, it was too inexperienced to figure out how to market that thing. And then, you know, a couple of years later, the countertop industry, you know, got killed by the Great Recession. And so tile countertops basically went away because granite countertops became so cheap. Nobody wanted to pay the labor to have granite tile. And so the granite tile polishing business basically just disappeared. And so that product also disappeared, kind of like the <laughs> the horse and buggy. They just went away. But the sleeves and aprons, the jackets, the floor mats that we got coming out, those continue to sell, you know, 15, 20 years after we launched the first product. Absolutely amazing. Actually, it's been 20 years. Absolutely amazing. Huge contribution from income. Now, let me tell you about the third product, the no-lift install system. Folks, fellow fabricators, you hear me talk about the no-lift all the time, and I, maybe I should do a, a, a word from our sponsor. The, <laughs> the sponsor of this podcast is no-lift install system. And you've heard me talk about it all the time. It's a great product. Well, let me tell you how it came to be. I had these installers. I was a former installer myself. I'd installed at the company before I went to work for myself. And I was having back problems already by the time I started my own company. Just my little scrawny (laughs) frame wasn't built for carrying those 3CM countertops in day in and day out, day after day. And so I started hiring installers to do that work for me. And I always felt kind of guilty about it. But, you know, you fast forward, it was probably 2012. I've got these installers, really good installers, maybe 2013 at the latest. I'm I'm sure that's when I built, because before we moved our shop in 2014, I built the first prototype before that. So 2012, 2013, I got a couple of really, really, really good installers, great installers. They had been working for me for years at that point. Both of them had reached the point where I was hearing this statement on a somewhat frequent basis, Aaron. Is there any way I can come to work in the shop? Is there any way I can go into template? Is there any way I can come in and run a piece of machine? Is there any way I can come in and polish? Well, the wear and tear of carrying those 3CM countertops in day after day, year after year, had finally taken their toll. And that, and, and I didn't have a place for them. You know, 2012, 2013, we were still coming out of the Great Recession, and we, things were just slowly starting to come back online, and we just didn't have a ton of extra work, not as much work as we wanted. And so I thought, i got to build this cart. And long story short, someone had suggested to me a concept of a countertop installation cart that would lift and rotate. It was my uncle, by the way. Lift and rotate to help my guys out. And so I built that first I Zero. The thought had never entered my mind when I was building that first prototype that I would ever go into building carts for anybody. It was just, I got to do something for these guys. Again, a problem that we were faced with that we set out to solve. So I built the first prototype. It looked like a medieval torture device. It kind of sort of worked. We at least proved that the concept of a lifting, rotating cart had some potential. 
I'll never forget, you can see this video on the No Lift uh, YouTube channel. Kind of hard to find. We got like 100, 110 videos on there. But one of our installers, and I have this video on my phone to this day. I should have queued that up. I could have played the audio for you. To this day, I'll never forget the comment that one of our installers made when we rotated that deck. It didn't even have a, a lock on it, so the, the deck was like still flopping in the wind. But that island, it was about a three-foot by six-foot island, not the heaviest by any means, but that thing slid onto that cabinet, and one of those installers literally said word for word, and you can find it on the video. He said, this is literally the best day of my life as an installer, Alan. Well, now that was a weird statement. Wow, is it that big of a deal? So anyway, long story short, they had all. It, it didn't really work. It kind of worked, and over the course of the next two years, we just kept working on it, working on it, working on it. The guy that had made that suggestion was my uncle. He'd come out of manufacturing. I en- enlisted his. Uh, it was his idea to begin with. So we kind of started working together. I had the the laboratory, if you will, of the install department, and he had the manufacturing know how. And over the course of a couple of years, we refined and refined and refined and refined and refined that cart. Again, never thinking about starting a business. My uncle had his own company. I had the countertop shop and fabricator's friend. It wasn't as if I didn't have enough to do. But we needed to solve this problem, and we kept working at it. We used to laugh to each other like, oh, man, these installers are so cynical. They're so critical. Oh, my God. What if we ever get this thing to the point where they actually like it? That'll be the day. And lo and behold, a couple of years later, the design that you see to this day, which fabricators may, I suggest you stay tuned because we're about to launch a new product that is going to absolutely blow your mind. If you already have a no lift, this accessory is going to absolutely transform the use of your no lift. And if you don't have one, well, you need one. And the accessory we're about to launch, you're gonna, it's 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 amazing. It's a it's the first significant evolution of the no lift since we started. But anyway, we we finally got the cart design to the point where one of my installers, not the same guy, but this is a couple of years later, the other installer that we had, he came to me and, and it, he had just this, he was just like had this revelation. He's like, Aaron, I, I'm never going to a job site ever again without this cart. He'd realized that that cart was going to allow him to actually do that job, to you know continue to utilize that skill and work in that position longer than he otherwise would have. Then he eventually moved out of that into management, and I think now he still works for the same company that I sold, and he's a base technician. But my point is, I never start, I never built that cart to start a business. I was simply trying to solve a problem, and lo and behold, the, the process repeated itself. Boy, if my installers have that kind of a reaction if they're never going to a job site again without that cart and we were working on a crane as well that went inside the trailer so the installed trailers at my company our installers eventually did not lift ever those countertops were loaded with the crane inside the trailer the cart was loaded with the crane inside the trailer the ramp dropped down and then they'd roll those countertops into the house up the roller ramp on the no lift and into the kitchen and then it would lift it and rotate it into the horizontal position and slide onto the cabinets our installers didn't lift Proof is in the pudding. I put my money where my mouth is. I was a firm believer in my installers not lifting long before we ever thought about selling carts to other fabricators, fellow fabricators. That was the goal, was just to solve the problem. And that's the problem we're still trying to solve today. But lo and behold, that business developed. And in fact, it actually eclipsed 
I countertop shop. It grew to the point where I couldn't manage both, and it was just time for me to exit. So that's the story. Fellow fabricators, all along the way, great recession, disasters, hiring people that ran the company down and had to come back in and do turnaround on my own company. You know, the, we were running the fab shop the entire time, but along the way, we developed three different products that were legitimate absolutely legit solutions to legit problems that faced us and many other fabricators in the industry. And those became legitimate, standalone, lucrative, profitable, viable businesses that massively contributed to my income. And here's the point. This is the point that I want to, I guess there's two things I want to, I want to, I want to mention. This is really the takeaway, the two things that I'm going to mention now. The value of, again, I'm not suggesting that you go out and start another business. That in and of itself may be too much to tolerate right now. You may be thinking, I've got my hands full with my countertop shop. I get it. I'm not suggesting you go out with the intent of starting another business. Although that may be the outcome. What I am encouraging you to consider, are there problems in the countertop industry that you have already solved for yourself? The, the, the number of these across the end, I could, in fact, that's what I'll do in the next episode. I will come up with a long, long laundry list of other fellow fabricators that solved problems in their shop. Lo and behold, only to realize, wow, this is a viable standalone business. And in some cases, those ancillary companies, those side hustles become the primary business and become as if not more profitable than the fab shop. Little secret here. In many cases, the income is better and the workload is a lot less. So that being said, fellow fabricator, let me mention a couple of things about this. Instead of you already start instead of starting to think, okay, I got to go out and solve a problem. Don't 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 think like that. Think like this. What problems have you already solved inside your stone shop? Now here here's the fact. There are an endless number of problems in this industry. There are an endless number of challenges and problems in our businesses, in a stone shop that have not yet been solved. This business, this industry is still somewhat relatively young. It's still relatively in its infancy. It's only been around about 20 years legitimately. So there are still lots of problems to solve. Understand that. There are huge, huge opportunities. There are lots of, the fact that a lot of these problems haven't been solved is why this business is so hard. <laughs> Fellow fabricator, you may have already solved some of those problems. The thought perhaps has crossed your mind, but you thought, nah, that would be too hard. There's no way to do that. Or perhaps the thoughts never crossed your mind. So don't start thinking, okay, I got to come up with a solution to a problem. Don't, don't not start thinking that. But before you go there, stop and think, what problems have I already solved within my own company? Because I'd be surprised if you haven't. You may not be aware of it. You may be underestimating the value of it. You may be underestimating the significance of it and the degree to which other fabricators may be willing to pay you for that solution instead of having to figure it out on their own. Wow, fellow fabricator, huge opportunity. Now, here's the other beautiful thing about the place that you are in. I'm not in this place anymore, and I'm going to tell you why this is kind of a challenge. Had I not had a stone shop, I could have never developed any of those products. 
Because the research and development component, the proofing out, the affirmation, the process of validating and refining an idea until it is a viable solution takes time. It takes work. It takes repetition. It takes, that didn't work, or it didn't work as well as we thought. Let's try it again. Let's adjust this. Let's add this. Let's subtract that. Let's put it back out into the field. Let's put it back out into the shop. Hey, that worked a little bit better, but what if we did this? Okay, we'll make another change. We'll build another one. That process requires that intimacy with the problem, that first person being connected at that level. See, this is one of the advantages you have, fellow fabricator, owning a stone shop. All the products that you've bought and didn't work, this is just a wild guess. But my guess is they were developed by companies who did not or never had owned a stone shop. They were perhaps aware of the problem or perhaps they already had a solution and it was just looking for a problem and they put it into the stone industry, but it kind of worked or it mostly worked, but it never really, really, really worked. Those kind of products were probably developed by companies who did not have their own stone shop as a laboratory to test and test and test and test until they perfect the solution. You fellow fabricator have that laboratory. It's called your stone shop. You have the capacity, the ability And most importantly, you have the first-person experience with the problems that you're facing and the solutions that you've probably already created. So that's an encouragement. You may have already got the solution. The question is, is how do you make that available to the rest of the industry? How do you contribute? What's your contribution? So, fellow fabricator, again, not suggesting that you go start another business. That may be too much for you to tolerate right now. But let me frame it like this. You may have solved a problem that other fabricators would significantly benefit from. And I'm just simply here to tell you from firsthand experience on multiple occasions, one was kind of a swing and a miss. The other two, absolute home runs with Fabricator's Friend and No Lift Install System. Folks, I'm telling you, absolute home runs. And if I hadn't had a stone shop, I never could have done the research and development to perfect those products and make them what they are today, which is viable standalone businesses that generate an enormous amount of income with a fraction of the amount of work, risk, effort, energy, and frustration that was required of me running my stone shop. So I'm encouraging you to start thinking this may not, tomorrow you may not launch that business, but may I suggest that you consider, that you entertain, that you imagine, that you left, give yourself the permission to think there may be a, an opportunity here within my company and I don't even realize it. We may have solved a problem that other fabricators might benefit from. And that's the whole point is you know that you've got a successful product when someone's willing to pay you for it. When they're like, oh, my gosh, that's all it costs to solve this problem. I've been waiting for somebody to solve this problem. The number of people when I was first selling no lifts, once we first kind of perfected that and decided, well, let's go test the market. The number of fabricators who said to me, you know, I've always thought about building a cart that lifted and rotated. I just never had the time and turned around and bought a cart from me, I heard that over and over and over again. I was not the first person to think that idea up. I just happened to be the first person to nearly go insane trying to introduce that idea to the industry and build a manufacturing company on the side while I was running my stone shop so that we could build those carts and introduce them and make them available to fabricators like you. So... Give yourself permission to think there may be a golden opportunity that you've already created 
a, pr- a problem you've already solved, a solution you may already have in the box. You just have to give yourself permission to think that other fabricators may benefit from them, that they may be willing to pay you for the privilege of using. They may not have time to go solve that problem on their own. And I'm hoping with the hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of you fabricators that listen to this episode, that you will take it upon yourself to join me in solving problems for this industry so that it gets easier. When we solve problems and share them with the rest of the industry and sell them for a profit, the industry improves. Other fabricators have an easier time. In fact, I should have mentioned this. My fabricator's friend motto is stonework is hard. We make it easier. I came up with that motto in probably the early 2000s. If you're going to have to wet polish in the winter, you might as well have dry sleeves on your sweatshirt. (laughs) Stonework is hard. We make it easier. That's the motto. That's the theme. That's the theory. That's the goal. With no lift, it's extending careers and lowering costs. We want installers to work longer, and we want fabricators to do it more profitably. And that's the goal. And so we help fabricators. We provide a solution to a problem that exists, and people pay us a lot of money for that solution because the cost of going out and developing it on their own is just not practical. The solution's already there. It would cost 10 times that to actually develop a product, even if you were knocking off the design. It just the time it would take away from your business to go out and solve that problem on your own when the solution already exists. But there may be solutions that you've already created that the rest of the industry might just simply be waiting for you to introduce. And I'm here to tell you, fellow fabricator, I'm here to tell you the value of having multiple streams of income. And this is the second point I want to make about the value of having a side hustle, the value of taking a problem that you've solved and sharing it with the rest of the industry many, many, many times. Now, my fab shop bankrolled (laughs) all those other ventures. If it wasn't for the fab shop, I'd have never had the resources to test and test and test and pour money into those, into those ventures, if you will, trying to solve those problems. So it had its, they never would have existed without the fab shop as a funding source or as a laboratory to test it in. But at the same time, there were seasons in my company's history where had it not been, there were times where I didn't take a salary. Things were too tough. Things were too lean. And I was taking a massive pay cut, but I had that side hustle that was still profitable and it generated income. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars over the course of the last two decades that those side hustles have contributed to my personal income. Multiple streams of income. Fellow fabricator, I cannot stress to you enough the extraordinary value of having multiple streams of income. And at one point I had three and I'm here to tell you that I couldn't manage that effectively. I'm doing a much better job with two. But having a separate, a secondary source of income that flows in, that maybe isn't necessarily subject to the same stresses that your fab shop is in your local market, because that's one of the benefits of, of selling to the entire industry. There are certain segments of the market, certain regions of the country that are still hot, even when other areas are down. And so your fab shop might be down. Other areas of the industry may be hot and you're still selling that sideline project, that side hustle, and it's still generating income. And so to have that, it's funny, I can't imagine not having at least two enterprises going at one time, or at least right now with the the podcast, the book sales, and the coaching, I guess you could call that a, a, a fourth idea. I never started that either with any intention of ever doing a podcast. I wrote that book just simply to share with the rest of the industry what I had learned, what I had been taught, and what had so benefited my business. So I guess that's a fourth a fourth uh, solution that I presented to the industry, how to develop processes within your shop to make it run better. But you get my point. 
Having multiple streams of income is of tremendous value. Instead of solely, exclusively relying on your countertop shop, that's stressful, especially when things are difficult in that ebb and flow. If you've got two businesses or three, as it were, uh, massive, massive, massive reduction in stress because you're not relying on a single source of income. So fellow fabricator, fabricators, fabricadoras, I am so glad that you spent the time. This is going to be one of the longest monologue podcasts I've done in a long time. Occasionally interviews go 40 minutes. I don't oftentimes do episodes. Maybe it's because I haven't done an episode in four weeks. I'm glad you're still listening. I hope you are encouraged. I hope you're excited. I hope you are already thinking about the solutions that you may have already created in your business that another fabricator may benefit from and more importantly, may be willing to pay you for. Isn't that exciting? Now, I have just scratched the surface. I've given you sort of a, a vision, if you will. I've given you a case study, if you will, of how this has played out in my own life, of how having a fab shop allowed me to start some other businesses, just simply solving problems for myself. That was the start. And then I started solving problems for other fabricators. And next thing you know, we got a couple of other very viable, very profitable enterprises. But we just scratched the surface. In the next episode, I want to get more specific into why, again, I'm not suggesting that you should. I'm just telling you why a side hustle does make sense. There are some strategic, there are some very clear-cut advantages to having a side hustle. In the next episode, we're going to talk about that. So make sure you tune in this coming Friday for episode 161. Now, the episode after that, I have been waiting for so long to do this episode, this topic. It's going to be called the best side hustle in the world. I should probably charge for what I'm going to share in that in that episode. Seriously. Honestly, what I'm going to share with you two episodes from now is going to be of such extraordinary value to you as you consider a side hustle because there are certain choices, there are certain problems you could solve that would make life, you know, they, they would be equally profitable, but one may be vastly, vastly less effort in the long run and, quite frankly, more profitable in the long run. So there is strategy, there is thought that goes along with this. And so in the next two episodes, the next episode, why a side hustle makes sense, and the episode after that, the best side hustle in the world. So fellow fabricator, I'm so glad that you tuned in. I want to share one final thought. In the next episode, I'm going to share an opportunity for you. I want you to be thinking about this between now and the next episode because um, I am leading a group of people, a team of 44 adults and kids down to an orphanage in Baja, California next month, March 17th through the 24th. It's an orphanage that we have been going down to and serving at for the last four or five years. Um, in fact, my entire family is going on this trip. We go down there and we build stuff. It is a orphanage. It was started in the 1970s by a couple who moved down to Mexico to take over an or orphanage, and they didn't even speak any Spanish. <laughs> it's an amazing story. They started the first special needs orphanage in Baja, California, that peninsula there on the west coast of Mexico. And I've had the privilege of the last four or five years of going down there and working. And this year, I'm leading a team of 44 people to go down and to do some construction projects. But the construction projects are funded by donations. And so I'm going to give you the opportunity in the next episode, a link in the show notes. If that strikes you, if that, if that, if that pulls at your heartstrings, if you are interested, of course, there's absolutely no way I would possibly be able to track it. I wouldn't know if you do or don't. But there will be a link. I just want you to be thinking about that. I don't ask for very much off of the Fab Lab podcast. I share everything I've ever learned transparently with no strings attached here on the Fab Lab podcast. But if I was ever going to ask, I would ask you to consider 
making a donation. It's a, it's called Rancho Santa Marta in San Vicente, Mexico. It's about four, maybe five hours south of Tijuana, in the Baja Peninsula. It is the first special needs orphanage ever started in Baja, California. And um, your donation would go to fund the construction project that we will be doing. Most likely involves mixing concrete. That has never not been something that we've done down there. Working on the, the homes that are built for those, uh, those unbelievably special kids down there. And some of them are adults now. There's a man down there. I probably shouldn't share his name over, over the podcast. But he came there in the 70s. He's about the same age as I am not capable of living on his own. He came to that orphanage, was abandoned, was orphaned, um, was dropped off at this orphanage in the late 70s. He is still there. In fact, a team that went down there a couple years before I went down the first time helped build a new home, and it's named after this gentleman. (laughs) He still lives there on Rancho Santa Marta. So fellow fabricators, if you have got a little bit of extra cash you'd like to invest in a worthy cause next week, I'm going to talk a little bit more about Rancho Santa Marta and the opportunity you have to fund a construction project as I lead a team of 44 people down there in mid-March. So with that, fellow fabricators, I'm so glad you tuned back in. The Fab Lab is back, folks. It's been exactly one month, February 20th. Today was January 20th last month. The Fab Lab is back, baby. Make sure you tune in for the next one. Until then, happy fabricating.